Welcome to C-Suite Radio. The Open Mic Podcast is brought to you by the Cheap Seat Entertainment Network. Holy heartbeat! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Excellent! With your host, Brad Allen. Well, isn't that extra special? Recorded live at Bay Area Studios. Join Brett each week as he interviews celebrities, influencers, authors, high-level entrepreneurs, and much more. At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Giddy up. And you never know who may stop by. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. Hey, 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 welcome into another episode of the show. Thanks for listening and being a part of the audience. We appreciate it very much. With me today, I have the talented comedian Greg Proops. You probably know him from Whose Line Is It Anyway. Proopcast, his live show, and of course, The Smartest Man in the World, his podcast, which can be heard internationally everywhere on all of your favorite listening platforms. We'll get into so many different things today. I am excited for you to be a part of this. I hope everybody has a fun and fantastic weekend, and uh, I know I've got a fun one lined up. We're going to chill out a little bit, enjoy the warm sun, maybe jump in the pool. Anyway, I digress. Welcome into the show, Greg. It's good to have you here today. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to chat with you. We have a lot to cover, but of course, the first question that I have that I've been asking all the people I'm chatting with is, what have you been up to? What's been keeping you occupied during this pandemic and lockdown? Well, uh, we do a few podcasts for friends and friends of friends and, uh, I've been doing stand-up and um, improv and uh, the podcast, or the podcast every week with my wife, uh, the Smartest Man in the World podcast. And then I'm on a, a place called the Nowhere Comedy Club that Ben Glebe and Steve Hofstetter put together. Been doing stand-up. I got one coming up with him on the 27th. Well, you can go to greatproofs.com. I think it's the 27th with Ben Glebe. Uh, one next week on Monday with Ngaio Bielam. And then on August 8th, the Proofcast live again. And it's like this, it's a, you know, but they, the audience leaves their mics on so you can hear them. You set it up in your house and you really perform for people. So that's how I've been dealing with that. Everything else, uh, you know, I go between hysterical anguish and drunken insanity. <laughs> I think that's the rest of us are dealing with that right now. Yep. I want to ask you about the virtual standup because I know a lot of folks like yourself have been doing this and I've been on this run of interviewing a lot of comedians lately. And so what has your experience been doing the virtual stand-up? How has the response been? What is it like performing virtually? I think people really like it. Um, the response has been really good. I, I, I mean, the first one I did in like May sold the most tickets, but I think people had more money then. And then when the revolution started, uh, what was it, May 25th, May 26th, right after uh, George Floyd's murder, people's focus was elsewhere. Uh, and it's, it's, and still is, I think, um, this is the big education for America. So it's, it's a very amazing time to do it. Um, but I, I, as far as the experience itself, I think it's very nice. It's really interactive. You can chat on the side, which people do. And then, uh, we do meet and greets after. So we would come on like you and I are right now and have a one-on-one chat with everybody after the show. And so it's taken the place of the thing that I used to do with the podcast was, Stand up, I would never do that in the old days because you have to have a little bit of magic before you go on as a stand up. You can't kind of be in everyone's table. But with the podcast, because it was a real intimate item, I would go to everyone's table and say hi to them before the show and give them a kitten sticker. Uh, so if you'd ever been to a live podcast of mine, you know that I meet everybody. 
I really tried to meet the whole crowd and talk to them, uh, which made the show a whole nother thing, right? Then when you start that, after you do that, you can start in the middle because you've already kind of made it happen. Whereas with stand-up, stand-up's jokes. And there's a bunch of people there who don't know why they're there. <laughs> there's 30 to 50% of the crowd has just come in because they want to see comedy. Right. They don't know that your comedy might be different because I'm a very lefty, vocal, political, feminist type comedian. And then sometimes people see me and they're like, I liked you before when you weren't threatening to my dominant paradigm. And now that I've seen your stand-up, I hate you because I'm a white guy. So with doing it virtually, um, it's the opposite because I meet everybody after. But I do come on before, sometimes on camera and wave and, and write things on the chat room like hi and everybody, just to let everybody know that I'm, I'm present, you know, because being present is the most por- important part of comedy. So I have a question for you. You mentioned doing the live events and things like that. And it's funny that you say that a lot of the high percentage rate of people not really understanding why they are there other than to <laughs> have a couple drinks and expect somebody to make them laugh. And as somebody who likes comedy, when people come to see you, do they expect the persona that you have on television with whose line? Like, what are people like? What is kind of the vibe when they know you're coming? If that question makes sense. Yes, it does. It's an interesting question because it's, it has everything. Comedy is all, all context, right? Uh, whether you're on the, the receiving end of it, what you're talking about, where the venue is, who's in the crowd, all of it's contextual. At a comedy stand up club, there are a percentage of people who simply have gone out to get drunk and see some jokes. And they still have, they feel that they have the right to complain if they don't like your humor. Whereas they held a magic machine in their hand called the phone. And all it takes is two seconds to look me up or any comedian for that matter and find almost all of our material. (laughs) There will be a recent set. There will be a YouTube. There will be album cuts. There will be Twitter. There will be Instagram. There'll be, we put ourselves out there on social media because that's our business. And yet people refuse to do it. And they'll come to the club and then they'll be mad at you because they disagree with you or whatever. They'll, they'll feel real free to heckle you. Whereas with if it was music or art or a play, you would never go out and go, hey, let's just go see some music and then walk into a place and go, I hate this music and start screaming at the band to play something different. But with comedians, we're sort of all on one big Venn diagram here. Everybody from, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Hart on this end to, you know, uh, uh, what's his name with the puppet on Jeff Dunham, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> somehow we're all one big thing, even though we're not. Um, no. So I think that's a mistake that it's, it's, it's thing that clubs uh, need to be real specific about who and why and what and where, what's their ethos. Are they pushing forward a dazzling variety of things to make money, which is most clubs, you know, like one week we have the urban acts and urban is code for black. And then one week we have the, uh, uh, you know, the, the white guy monologists and, you know, but they are always balancing how to sell more tickets and rarely thinking about creating an audience for intelligent comedy. Mm-hmm. So I, I've kind of quit playing all the clubs where if I see someone that I don't think is a very good or funny comedian, I just won't play that club anymore. What was weird, Brett, was right before this, I was attempting to break out of clubs and into theaters. And that was, I lost a theater date in Rhode Island just when this all shut down. You know, uh, I'd just done one in Florida, in Broward of all places, which now is an unbelievable 
scene of tragedy. That was on February 28th. And uh, the next two weeks after that, I had a uh, theater date in Rhode Island. So, you know, the best laid plans, as they say. I think it's up to comedy audiences to take two seconds to educate yourself about the comic you're going to see. There's no point in going to see someone and then yelling at them because it's not the comic's fault. The comic's been doing what they've always been doing. It's your fault. I don't go to a bookstore and just go, I want something to read and then just willy nilly grab something off a shelf and then get it home and go, wait a minute, I hate this. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. And and interestingly enough, talking about how the club chooses to bill you as a comic and things like if they put your poster up, let's say you're coming to the Bay Area and you're playing Cobbs in San Francisco, right? One of the most popular rooms in the country. And they put on there Greg Proops from Whose Line Is It Anyway? And that's how they sell you. Right. You know, I still feel like it's important for me. Like if I saw that, I wouldn't go expecting for you to go up there and bring audience members up and, and perform that persona right. that you have when you're with the guys, right? Like that's not like, interestingly enough, Colin is coming on the show in a couple weeks. And so, you know, I've done my research about him and I know his personality and kind of what to expect. So. Every comic is different, but I wouldn't go expecting to see that. I would go because I know the kind of comedy that you perform and what you do. I want to go and be entertained in that aspect to hear you talk about events and things like that. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm paying for, not, you know, the whatever the case might be. So I, I like your perspective on that. Well, you know, I'm in a group with Ryan Styles for 20 years, and uh, we did 100 dates last year. We were supposed to do 75 dates this year. I think we did about seven or eight. We all went to shit in a shit basket. And that's who's, it's called Who's Live Anyway. That's the show where everyone's expectation is fulfilled. If you like the TV show Who's Line and you want to see us play the games from Who's Line and sing songs and, and do all that, that's what we do. We're, we're a vaudeville act, traveling vaudeville act that does the TV show Who's Line Is It Anyway. And so no one's confused coming to that. No. Everybody knows why they're there. It's a, it's a stand-up club situation in San Francisco, of course. I was there so long and I'm so identified with the city that I really don't get a lot of people who are confused. It's more like the resistant types who come and didn't want to get as much of a lecture as... <laughs> <laughs> I, I get thought. it, man. I tell you what, like, <laughs> I, it's interesting that you joke, we joke about that, but the same thing is with, like, Dave Chappelle. I don't know if you saw that video that he did, the 30 minutes where he did... No, a, I haven't yet. Okay, well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I, I would recommend watching it because sure. a lot of people went into that thinking that he was going to do a 30-minute set. And although he is funny, like he's funny, but even in his act, which I've seen him before, there's a lot of some of the similar things that you do. It's it's not just joke, laugh, joke, laugh, joke, joke, laugh. There's like a lot of thoughts and a lot of consideration into while you're performing. And that's one of the reasons of many that I appreciate your humor is because you're not just up there to people, please. Right. You're there to like there's a message that you are out to deliver. And so obviously your approach is far different than like the, like the paradigm that we said, you know, you've got Kevin over here and Terry Fader, Jeff Dunham on the polar opposite side. When you decide that you want to go out and do something and you're putting an act together, like what is your approach to putting an hour together or a set? Like how does Greg approach? What is your methodology? I used to, it's changed over the years, but I, I used to write 
everything down, then take it out, perform it, which is, I think, the tried and true way. Uh, and then add here, take away there, streamline stuff, make other, expand other things. Now, lately, I've improvised everything with a set of ideas going in. Um, the album I made, The Resistance, in uh, the middle of this shit show a year and a half ago, um, was supposed to be directly addressing what was going on. And at that time, of course, it was Zuckerberg. Uh, you know, we didn't have a Democratic candidate yet. That was how long ago this was. I know time's going so quickly, but uh, I had ideas for those bits, and I thought I'd take them on stage and expand them. Then the last album I did, which I made in August in San Francisco, I hilariously, because uh, as they say, God's got a fucked up sense of humor. The punchline was going to close. Then a bunch of people, including Chappelle, intervened, and the punchline remained open. And so. I was going there. I received the news right before I played that I was going to be the last act to play the punchline. So I, my wife said to me, why don't you make an album on the weekend? And the, the motif can be, you know, you can talk about the punchline because I played there for, you know, let's not get into how long. Um, <laughs> 38 years or whatever, 28 years. And, uh, so that was the premise. And then I got a phone call and they went, um, the club saved. <laughs> and so I went up there with one whole idea in mind, got there and realized I hadn't written a fucking word of new material. I improvised four different sets over a different theme. I put different things in each set. I didn't talk about the same thing in every set. The energy level was different for the crowd and different because it was really hot and the air conditioning wasn't working in the punchline. So that one, I really, really, and the resistance to some level, really tried to force myself to improvise being hilarious and you do word choice and nail the idea down and i knew over the course of four sets i could get one set that was 40 minutes you know an album which i have but i've been too lazy to put it together because i've been um so fucking panicked since march does improv come easier to you than actual stand-up or are they both naturally connected for you as a comic I, they're both naturally connected and i think that i i at my best even when i have carefully written out things that I've, you know, worded perfectly. Uh, if I can extemporize within that and free will, um, that's when I'm having the most fun and when the audience is too. Because as you know, I take time out of my material to berate the audience for not being smart enough. That's one of the things that makes me one of the more charming stand-up comedians. As a friend of mine once described it to me, Matt Weinhold, years ago, he said, your style is to tell a joke and then spend five minutes telling the audience why they didn't laugh hard enough at it. <laughs> that is classic. I so it's not just like, it's not uh, like normal crowd work. It's like, did you not get the joke? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. I have no interest in talking to the crowd about where they're from or, or what job they do. I hosted for years. I put in all the time. You know, this is next to being a blacksmith or uh, a cobbler or a ballet dancer or whatnot. Comedy requires an apprenticeship, an unpaid apprenticeship that you do for several years. And then you start to get a small paid apprenticeship. And then you work your way up to getting some money. And then if you're lucky like me and you've been around 100 years, you can make a living at it. The goal of every comedian when they start, except for the rich ones, is uh, to just simply make a living not having to do work you don't want to do, mm -hmm. like anybody else. But they always talk about your voice and how it takes you seven years to get your voice. It's because you have to go to open mics every night for three or four years to even get an idea of what you're doing. But after you go through that cauldron, then you have the confidence. And, that, and the other element of comedy besides presence, as I said, and, and having a sense of being an idiot, I think you always want to be a child, is uh, confidence wins the day. You know, If a crowd feels you're not confident, 
you've been there. I mean, and we've all seen a comic get up there and go, well, you guys don't like me. And then not the audience wants you to win. And uh, I was getting heckled, you know, this is an hour long set in a giant theater in a casino. There's a couple thousand people in uh, and getting good money, you know, and uh, this person's heckling the shit out of me. And I realized I've got to um, nuke them from space in order to win. So I fucking turned on them and I went completely New Jersey. I said, I traveled 3000 fucking miles to be here and you're disrespecting me and I won't fucking, you know, and the place fucking, and I had them thrown out by the security guard in front of everybody marched out and the Jersey crowd just after that, they loved me up until then it was, you know, putting out a fire, putting out, putting out a fire, putting out a fire. And so it's all about psychology and, you have to have the confidence to be able to back that shit up, you know, uh, which I knew I could. I knew that once I disciplined one of them really hard, that the rest of them would shut the fuck up and watch the show, which they did. Wow. that I mean, that is so interesting just to hear these stories. So that leads me to another question, Greg, is we're, we're just on this topic of the comedy, you know, 401, basically. So you've been through the cauldron. You have worked the rooms. You were a host. I'm sure. Did you do door work too? Probably at some point. I didn't. I, I was never a doorman. I never worked at a comedy club. I, I always felt strongly about that. A lot of great comics, you know, Mark Maron, whatever, Bob Rubin, I can think of a bunch that worked at the club. I never did. Um, I, uh, I started as an open micer. Then I was in a, I was in a team with a, a friend of mine. This is in the early eighties. Then I'd went and did an improv group for a couple of years and I came back and in about 86, uh, started doing stand up on my own again had to go right back to the bottom, you know, the, uh, you open and then you go on the road for no money. And then I'm featured, which is the sweet slot, right? 20, 20, 25 minutes and, um, worked my way up to headliner. So, but it took a long from 86, probably by 91 or 92, I was headlining everywhere. I'd kind of wanted to, well, this is a long time ago, man. So I've been on the road a while. And, uh, then who's line, we started going on the road with Drew in 99. He took us to Vegas and we did Super Bowl weekend. And then Ryan started a group up and I've been in his group since then. Now we're on to 20, 21 years together. I mean, that is like literally, I think with, if you look at, let's see, Drew was the original host and now I can't think of her name. Aisha. Aisha host, but it's literally like one of the, it seems longest running shows on television. Like I remember watching it in high school. I'm, I'm just to do to turn 46. And so I remember back in the beginning when that started. But I wanted to ask you, because I like to ask comics this and just get your perspective. You have earned your stripes, I would say. You've kind of worked your way from tip to tail. Yeah, literally, if we'll see this video later and people will see Greg wearing this great jacket. Um, only I-, I couldn't get away with that, but uh, you definitely make it work. So Thank you. Yeah, of course. Now, these reality shows that bring comics on and they come on and they perform. I've heard Jerry Seinfeld talk about this where he says, you know, you did great tonight. Welcome to Hollywood, but it, you may not do great the next night. Do you feel that these shows just from your perspective do a disservice to these comics or whomever who don't give them the opportunity to work their way up through the ranks or, or is it like an instant what, what are we talking about like last comic standing or something well not last comic let's talk about america's got talent that's what comes to my mind oh that kind of thing yeah, yeah. Man, you know what there's been that since time began on the radio in the uh, 40s was a show called major bows amateur hour 
And then um, when I was a little kid, little, little kid uh, in the fifties and early sixties, there was a show on television called Ted Max Amateur Hour. And then there was the gong show. I mean, you know, this is as old, the tale as old as time. Everybody wants to get up at the county fair and do a thing. Yeah. You can be good once. Uh, It's being good night after night. And it's not just being good night after night. It's being failing a bunch of times while you're trying to be good. And then taking what you learned from the failure and putting it back into the act to make it better. I've had comics say to me, they never change anything until it doesn't work, right? If it stops working, then you know you're not doing it right. Either you're not delivering it right or you need to fix the writing. And I think that's what makes a comedian. You know, years ago, I was in Atlanta at a very nice club called the Laughing Skull Lounge. And these two young men approached me and uh, I said, yes, of course. No, these two young men approached me and said, <laughs> okay. um, but we want to talk to you about comedy. And I said, okay. And I said, well, what do you want to know? And they went, well, what about our careers? And I said, well, how long have you been doing it? And one guy had been doing it 13 months and the other guy had been doing it like almost two years. And I went, first of all, you don't have a career. So stop thinking about that and start thinking about how you're going to build something. You got to make it funny. And that requires going on stage every night. It requires having a backlog of material. It requires being able to handle hecklers. It requires being able to schmooze and deal with the people in the club, get along with the other comedians. All those things is what it takes. It's When you're thinking of your career, that's an abstract thing. Like, like saying you look at a blank page and go, this is going to be the greatest novel of all time. <laughs> you better write the novel and then we can all talk about how good it is. An overnight success that's taken over three decades to get to where you're at and you're still going like you're not there's no intention oh, to no, stop no, no. this, this is a, a certainly an apostrophe but uh, yeah. uh no i mean like seinfeld before he was the tv star and i was on the road in the 80s was the number one club headliner in the country and he got more money than anyone else and he drew bigger crowds than everyone else so this is the when did the show start? Like 88? Right around there. Yeah. 88, yeah. 89. Yeah. So this is a, a late 80s when I was touring and I was like a featured act. He would always be a headliner at the big clubs like in or you know, Southern California, whatever. So, you know, just for what we considered mad money, of course, nothing close to the money that he eventually got. But uh, he worked his ass off to have an act strong enough that he had a persona when he went on TV that yeah, and was I, en- enduring. Yeah. There was a documentary that was on Netflix that Right. It was him and Orny Adams, right? They were kind of like going at it at the same time. He talks about how he yeah, it was struggled. Yeah, he quit the show and he went yeah. back to the Yeah, and it again. wasn't as easy as he remembered mm-hmm. it. Same with Ray Romano, too, you know? Like, there was just this apostrophe of time from when they went from being completely in charge of everything to now you're back out on the road again. What do you find funny? Like, what is entertaining to you as just an individual if you turn off all the other parts of you, the stand-up, the improv, like what do you find entertaining? I like uh, uh, old movies, you know, cl- uh, classic films. Uh, my wife and I have a, a film club that has my name on it that basically Jennifer chooses all the pictures. We're going to try to restart it online. We were doing it live for the last five, seven years. And uh, we show a movie every month and we moved around. We're in our third or fourth theater here in LA. But that I really enjoy. Like we showed High and Low, which is this... Uh, Japanese film from the early 60s by Kurosawa. A rich corporate guy's kid gets kidnapped. Then they figure out the kidnapper's taken the wrong kid. He took the chauffeur's kid. And so do they pay the ransom? Are they morally, you know what I mean? So to me, to watch audiences dig that and to watch the old movies um, is, is most entertaining. I think that's how 
I used to love baseball a lot. Um, I think yeah, you know a lot like, of baseball knowledge. I've studied baseball my whole life and um, especially love the Negro Leagues because of the story of how much they had to endure and how strong, extraordinary the effort was to keep something going um, that they had to basically build in private and, and do on their own. And then, of course, I've, I had the real awesome privilege of being a the host of the Negro Leagues the last three years for what they call the Hall of Game, where they give out awards to players and people in baseball that they think are deserving recognition. And last year, it was uh, Sharon Robinson, Jackie's daughter, Eric Davis, Dave Parker, Dave Stewart, and Fred McGriff. And so hosting those guys, interviewing them, being in the museum, we all have ribs for lunch. Then we have this big banquet at night is the funnest thing. I mean, I just get that to me is it's the greatest weekend of my life. And it got canceled this year, of course, because, you know, uh, everything's canceled. That one. And then I have the very great fortune of having been in the movie Nightmare Before Christmas with Danny Elfman. Danny put me in the movie in like, God, 92 or whatever. Anyway, he, the last five years, he's wanted to take it on the road. So we've done the Hollywood Bowl. We've done Brooklyn. We did uh, Tokyo last year. Glasgow, London, and Dublin. It's a full symphony orchestra, and they show the movie, and then we come out and sing all the parts with a live symphony orchestra, and they stop the picture, and they go, Danny Elfman, he comes out, and then they stop the picture of Catherine O'Hara, she comes out and sings Sally, and they stop the picture of Ken Page comes out and sings Oogie Boogie. So, singing with a live symphony orchestra with all those people is un-fucking-believable. I'm never happier than when I'm doing it. I laugh through the whole thing. I'm hysterical. I'm literally giddy with hysteria. The conductor, John Mocheri, was a protege of Leonard Bernstein, and he tells amazing stories about Bernstein in a very conductor way. So the wonderful thing about Lenny was he had such a marvelous sense of humor. And I'm post up, so like where you are on my screen, that's where I am, and there's John. So he's got the orchestra sawing away, then it's my cue, and he'll go and sing it with me. The conductor sings the whole show with us. It's great. So those are three things. I know those are all gigs, but my love of this movie and getting to sing, being in front of the violas, hearing the harps and the drums crashing, going to Japan and doing it with the Tokyo Symphony, you know, I don't, I, it's pretty thrilling, man. <laughs> I've seen clips of it online. It's, it's quite incredible. And yeah. just watching that now also, and, and doing my research, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the original voice of Bob the Builder. I'm I, I'm a voice of Bob the Builder. I, I did it from, I think, 2000 to like 2004 or five or six, maybe. Uh, there was one before me, and then there's an, always been a parallel, and there's been ones after me, uh, an English version. I did the version for America and Canada, which they love in show business in England to call North America. <laughs> so they, they wanted a North American voice. And also we don't say uh, caravan. We don't break for tea. We don't have bits. We have parts. Uh, we don't drive an auto. We, we don't drive lorries. We drive trucks. So it had to be sort of translated into American. Because on the English version, they stop and they have tea and, and bickies. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and the American version, we have a coffee break. That is funny. Well, I have a six-year-old, and so we watched Bob the Builder for days, and uh, for the longest time, you know, my yeah, son. I'm hot was, with the under fives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have a fan uh, with my. Well, he doesn't watch it so much anymore. Now it's no, you know six, yeah. Minecraft and all of this YouTube stuff, and right. you know other types of things. Do you consider yourself to be a, a teacher of the arts and comedy? Because I get that vibe from you that you could teach a class. Do you see yourself in that light? Um, I'm certainly pedantic. 
Um, there's no question of that. Um, no, I prefer to teach from the stage, if that makes any sense to you. Podcast uh, is a real from the heart experience. And now that my wife and I do it together, it's even more personal, you know, because before it was, I was uh, extrapolating a lot of her ideas. We would put the show together, the two of us, and then I would go on and do it. But since the last couple of years, we've done it together. So now it's more even a conversation um, of music and politics and art and race and feminism and, you know, the whole enchilada. And I've never wanted to teach because I always feel like it's, it's dry and I prefer the platform of comedy to teach. So Jennifer and I can talk about jazz artists, uh, composers, museums, uh, political things you should join, uh, you know, uh, historical figures you should look into. Like his sister Rosetta Tharp, who kind of invented rock and roll and whatnot. We can play it on the podcast and people can hear it. And it's a much funner way of learning something than if you go to a class and you sit down and I say, now this is how things work. It's like, you know, if we talk about a historical event, I can make it interesting, fascinating. Not that historical events aren't in and of themselves. But you know how school is presented. School's not always as lush and bountiful as you want it to be. There's too much going on for it to be fun every minute. Whereas a podcast, it can be fun for an hour and a half. And at the end of it, you go, I never uh, thought that or I never knew that. And I have a lot of people write me uh, over the years and say they learned more history and stuff from my podcast than they did at school because schools are pretty hesitant about telling you what horrible, horrible white people have done over the last 400 years. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's interesting now, especially with, uh, yeah, that's an understatement, my friend, I will tell you that, yeah. you know, especially now with this whole pandemic, we're, we have made the decision, his mother and I, we co-parent, we're not together, and we have decided to homeschool him this year for first grade for many reasons, mm. and uh, it's not just mostly because of the way the school schedule is set up here, and it's just ridiculous what they want to do, but I agree with you you know, we've always kind of done comparative learning as well and tried to make school more interesting and educational. And so as we were talking and I was hearing you explain things, that's what prompted the question about teaching because your podcast, I want to talk about that, The Smartest Man in the World. It's great. And if you want to learn things, you have to listen to this and we will link this in the show notes to this episode. But let's talk about your podcast, kind of what the idea was behind it. I know you wrote a book in 2015, which I, I read the book before our interview. It's, oh, it's older. Yeah, but I like to really, you know, I, eight to 10 hours of research typically I put into an hour or so interview because I- Well, that makes you singular. Yeah, there's a few of us out there, not a lot. I could probably count on one hand, you know, I don't like to right. just vamp and, uh, you know, just kind of do an exploratory type of conversation. But let's talk about your show. And if people haven't heard it, what they can expect when they enter into the world of Greg Proops and his podcast. Well, right now, of course, it's, you know, um, everything's at full tilt boogie and everybody in America is super uh, involved in the political process, if they can be, other than the people who are simply trying to bloody survive every day of this unbelievable mess. So we try to play to that. And, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was like, all politics because the middle of the revolution several weeks ago it was non-stop marching and non-stop politics so we try to address that and give you avenues to go to places you can participate groups that will inspire you and and captivate you and try to motivate you now, on top of that of course the last few weeks we've really tried to play a lot of great music sometimes it's an excuse sometimes it's an obituary um the first several months of this you may have noticed a whole generation of black jazz musicians um, 
got coronavirus, many of whom lived in New York. And so sadly, uh, their music was the music of the show for the first few months. But and maybe not so sadly, because at least it marked their passing. And we got to give them a eulogy, talk about their careers. And then lately, like last week's show was... Um, it was Mavis Staples' birthday and Ringo Starr's birthday, and they both did really cool things. Ringo Starr did that giant broadcast, I don't know if you saw it, where he had Paul McCartney and he had everybody, and they sang Beatles songs and he sang and this and that. And it was really cute. And he gave a bunch of money to Black Lives Matter and all these other charities, which was really cool of them in the middle of this to talk about racism. He's 80 years old, you know? Then Mavis Staples had a new record out that she'd just done. And I have had occasion in my show business life to meet both of them. So I was able to tell the stories. Then we played a bunch of their music. Uh, maybe if you're young, you don't know that Ringo had a big solo career in the early 70s after the Beatles. He was really successful. So that's the fun of it. If you listen, that's the kind of things we talk about. We'll talk about free work, places to go to listen to opera on, on YouTube, on, on computer. Not listen, but watch full operas, art galleries, books that maybe you might think about reading, um, bookstores that you might think about frequenting that aren't your regular chain bookstore that are you know historically black bookstores around the country who are doing a booming business during this time. And it's nice to see that they could try to survive in this atmosphere. Is this a long answer? Uh, not so much no, sports lately as, as me bitching about sports because I really feel like the owners are a blight on the land. And that's in every sport, mind you. The NBA has got a bunch of guys in quarantine down in Florida. Major League Baseball has got people testing positive and, and quitting the season. The WNBA has a racist owner, Kelly Leffler, the senator from Georgia, who was appointed by Brian Kemp, the governor who stole yeah, the election from yeah. Stacey Abrams. And she doesn't want to recognize Black Lives Matter in a league that's 80% Black women. Uh, Elena Deladon has a serious disease. She takes 65 pills for a day. She doesn't want to play the season. First, they weren't going to pay her. Then they, you know. So I used to love talking about sports because I think the athletes are heroes, but the owners have made everything so awful. And their reaction to this has been like kind of like the White House. Let's pretend it's not happening and just be greedy and try to steal as much as we can. And it makes me sick because, you know, you have a, you have a six-year-old. In a couple of years, he'll probably become interested in lots of things, uh, books and, and movies more. He'll under, you know, the, when your grasp gets a little more appreciative. And some of the things that little kids get interested in when they're little is sports, whether it's track and field or the soccer or whatever. And, you know, when you're little, you're, you're, your grasp of it is you, you love the people who are playing. You love the heroics, you love the drama, you love the winning and losing, the crying with your team. You don't understand that there's a bunch of billionaires behind this who are all racist Nazis who actively <laughs> don't like the sports that they own, but really want to show off to their other racist Nazi billionaire friends by having a luxury box. Uh, and what, it's, it's horrible to, when you come to that realization, and it happens later uh, when you start to examine the game and not just like turn it on and make it an entertainment thing. Of course, a lot of people never do. A lot of men, especially white guys, really, 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 really never want to hear about what sports really is, this giant mm -hmm. entertainment industry. Because it's as much as entertainment industry as comedy or music or television. and It's bigger. So that's what we talk about on the show. You know, maybe someone's never thought of it that way. Maybe they've just watched sports and been entertained by it. But surely the pandemic is laying bare because most essential elements of what's going on between um, management and labor in this case. And yes, they are labor. Even if they make $5 million a year, they're yeah. the same as you and I. They have a limited shelf life. They can only work for this long. Uh, the owners control the means of production. You know the deal. I don't want to sound like Karl Marx. No, no, but I think you bring Although to Although much light. to his credit, he was one of the laziest people that ever lived. <laughs> That's irony for you if there ever was. Right. And I think I saw, I was just watching TV this morning kind of as I woke up and it looks like July 25th, they're supposed to start baseball with no 
crowds and you know which i think is i i don't really understand it you know like yeah i know that's that's a good point you know i don't really get it because i'm not really i mean living in the bay you know we have a mutual friend pete turner right so i want to recognize him and he's responsible for connecting us and uh setting this fantastic interview up and you know he's not here anymore I think he's in Southern California. In any case, we have a lot of conversations about this because, you know, it's interesting. I, I, who, who is it for? That's the question. You know, like, why is there like this thing? And then, of course, you know, Disneyland is opening up you know, and now they're talking about the spike in cases. So I want to ask you this and you've talked about this on your show, but I would love to get your perspective. And how do we from Greg Proop's perspective as a human being, how do we move forward as a country and just get better from all of this? Like, is it, are we like, what, what do we do? Like, can we get better? And if so, like, what is it going to take for us to wake up and, and answer that question? Who is it for? And just do better overall? Well, that's a giant question, but the answer I think is that all politics are personal. So what do I mean by that? I mean, wearing a mask is, now a political act but it's uh thank goodness it's a warm and human political act there's really nothing more important um, thing that you can do right now in society and what we're living in in the very moment we're living, is every time you leave your house put a mask on it just shows everybody that you're trying to mitigate this it's been proven that two people wearing masks brings the, the chance of infection down to way down one person not wearing a mask bad Two people not wearing masks, super bad. Um, the idea that it got politicized speaks to the balkanization of not the American public, but the weaponization, I think, of the media, Facebook, Fox News, and Russia running what they call active measures, which is to flood everything with lies and chaos. Mm-hmm. So there should be no question that wearing a mask is a safe thing to do and that everyone should do it. It's not simple, but they've managed to turn it into this thing where white people have to have their freedom to cough on people and be awful and stuff. Um, So every interaction you have with another person begins with that thought of, do I care about your life? By wearing, by wearing, I'll grab one of my sexier ones. Nice. Of and, course, you have then, a leopard, a leopard skin, or whatever. I also have this skin. one, which I love. That my wife got for us. My roommate yeah. would appreciate that if she could see that. She would love that. So see, so they, he sells them. So uh, and then following up with that, I don't think we have any choice. I think we have to help everybody. I think we, in the face of what appears to be an insurmountable army of Nazis and Nazi billionaires and their accomplices. Progress is made every day. There's a lot of losses. We take a lot of hits. But look at what's happened in the last two months. Police departments are being reviewed. City budgets are being cut. The uh, redistribution of wealth is happening uh, in small areas and in different places. Um, People are reaching out more than they ever did to help people in their neighborhood, to help people in their community, um, to help the poor the old, the elderly. I'm sure you check on your neighbors. I think more people do that now than ever did before. Absolutely. We were always friendly with our neighbors, but now we bring them food and call them and, you know, blah. It all starts there. You are not, as an individual, going to change the entire universe by force of will or Twitter or anything like that. But you can participate in society by going on online things that you support politically, by giving a dollar here or a dollar there, by trying to look after the people who don't have what you have. In my world, every action is like that. If you see someone being a racist asshole, let them know that you think they're being a racist asshole. Don't let everything slide. We're past that now. In order for everything to move forward, as you say, and fundamentally change, nice, uh, to put it 
in a super liberal way, we have to have enforced fairness and enforced niceness because people aren't going to do it on their own. And I, that means not that you're telling everybody what to do, but that you, your behavior is, is your personality, your behavior is who you are. If you're going to be a dick to people, if you're going to put other people in danger by driving too fast or going to the store without a mask or putting your kids back in school before it's safe or urging other people to do those things, then you're not a positive impulse in the world. If you think about being a positive impulse in the world, the one thing I can do because of the podcast and I have some listeners for my standup is try to give people voices that don't get a voice on everyday media, homeless people, uh, 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 people of color, people who are trying to change the system. Um, I'm a white guy. So people listen to me and that as you know, the, the, having any kind of platform, however small, uh, I think it's important to illuminate that instead of just talking about how much you love, like ultimate fighting or what, uh, supplements you're taking or all that cell fucking navel gazing shit that all the other male comedians do that drives me fucking crazy that's very well why put, not, my friend why not why not participate in the world why not elevate women a little bit why not yeah it, if it makes it me makes a loop for... if, if no, it makes no, me a liberal, uh, you know a, a, a libtard uh, <laughs> dick bag then so be it uh, i'm i'd rather be known as the whiny liberal guy who tried to help than the nazi dude who shaved his head and you know told the government to fuck off because they were confusing him with too many facts or whatever. <laughs> That's a perfect way uh, to end things. If people want to watch your stand-up online or they want to check out your podcast, Greg, or just connect with you on social media, what is the best way to do that? Currently having some difficulties with my social media because of the big hacking two days ago. Um, but I have a, another tweet, a tweet, uh, Twitter account. It's at Proops Greg. My other one is at Greg Proops. I'm also on um, Instagram and Proop Dog. Uh, you can email me if you want to email me directly at fanmailforgreg at gmail.com. Fanmailforgreg at gmail.com. I also have a website called gregproops.com. It's got all my comedy dates listed. And since there's not so many road dates now, uh, they're pretty easy to find. They're right there in the body edit. The podcast is free and you can download it at my website. I also have a film podcast called The Great Fruits Film Club and that's also free to download. And um, I have a couple of albums, The uh, Resistance and In the Ballpark that are on iTunes. I guess they play them on Sirius and stuff like that. So thank you. That's, uh, I think that's all my plugs. Wonderful. Well, Greg, thank you for joining me on the show today. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. That brings today's episode to an end. Thanks for choosing to stop by and listen. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend and hitting the subscribe button. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Is it all over, Rock? I guess so. Until next time, cheers. Today's episode of the Open Mic Podcast is brought to you by Cheap Seat Entertainment. 